Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good uh, evening, everybody. Um, uh, my name is Nick Pierce. I'm uh, director of the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath, uh, and I'm really pleased this evening to welcome you to a, a conversation event with Edward Luce, uh, the U.S. national editor and columnist at the Financial Times. Um, Edward has been writing, you know, really fascinating columns and pieces about the. Uh, situation in America and particularly of course the upcoming US presidential uh, election. Um, before taking on his current role he was the US um, uh, FT Washington bureau chief uh, and is the author of um, some acclaimed books on the future of uh, Western liberalism, um, Start Thinking America in the Age of Dissent and before that from his time from Southeast Asia for the FT uh, on India um, and he regularly appears on uh, US broadcasts on CNN uh, Morning Joe uh, and the BBC. So it's, it's great to have you here with us this evening, um, Ed, for this conversation. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the US election, in particular the presidential election, uh, use that perhaps also to reflect on uh, some of the kind of big questions about what's happening to US politics, its constitution and the place of the US in the world. Um, so thanks very much indeed for joining us. And I'm going to kick off, if I can, Ed, by just asking you to say a little bit about, you know, for, particularly for a British audience, although there will be people from around the world joining us tonight, but for a British audience, what is the mood like in the US? What's the kind of atmosphere uh, as we get close to the presidential election? Uh, well, thanks, first of all, Nick, for, for uh, having me. Um, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I've been based here 15 years um, almost and been through several presidential elections. I think I've been here over the course of the growing polarization of uh, American, not just American politics, but American culture and society. Um, but I don't think I've ever sort of felt a level of toxicity this high. Um, this is a, a, you know, a, a profoundly um, mutually alienated culture um, that this election is taking place within. Um, and of course, amongst liberals and Democrats, there is no matter how many polls show showing Biden 10 points ahead or in the lead in the swing states, there is this sort of insomniac, um, nervous exhaustion um, that none of these polls are true and that 2016 is going to recur again and they have PTSD. And so there is sort of that, that stress level sort of overlaid on, on all of this. Um, but this is this is a this is a, a pretty nasty divided politics, and we're going to have tonight about eight eight nine hours from now, we're going to have the final presidential debate. And as you might recall, the first one, this middle one, was cancelled because Trump uh, had COVID. But the the first one, you know, I think was probably the most um, interruptive, obnoxious, argumentative debate in presidential history, not probably, definitely. Most of which, of course, well, 90% of which, of course, was Trump's fault. Biden did tell him to shut up, man, um, at one point, but Biden doesn't normally do that. So that was sort of a measure of how nasty it is. And it's in the next 12 days before voting, to, uh, before in-person voting takes place, because of course, we've already had tens of millions of mail-in ballots sent. Um, uh, there are little trailers about what what the Trump campaign is planning to do, and you know they're not they're not family viewing kind of issues. And um, the, these divisions that you talk about, um, I mean, how far is this election a sort of because of COVID, because of the pandemic, its economic effects? Now, how far is this a, a sort of abnormal crisis election? Um, where other issues just get punted to the side and all of the kind of ways in which we think about politics are sort of upended? Um, or, or how far is it actually um, one in which, you know, as, as you say, these divisions, these pre-existing divisions are just being sharpened and heightened and, and existing divisions are, are being used to sort of frame the crisis response? I mean, so how, how do we think about the election in those terms? Um, well, the, you know, it, it, I think it would be fair to say that if the pandemic hadn't hit, Trump might well have a 50-50 chance of winning. And right now I'd give him like a 10, 15% chance of winning. His mishandling of coronavirus is one thing. Um, another, of course, is um, 
that it has exposed what you rightly call the pre-existing conditions. It's crystallized structural problems with the American economy. Lack of healthcare is a very obvious one. Um, lack of childcare is, uh, is another. Um, the um, way in which what we now call essential workers are treated and paid, the conditions under which they're employed, the parlous conditions, that's been crystallized by this pandemic. So you can see, as some people on the Biden campaign do, you can see this as a crisis equals opportunity moment to undertake, should Biden win, um, almost Rooseveltian kind of structural reforms wow. to um, the American economy, to have a new social compact, um, to um, you know, rewrite the New Deal, um, because it has so starkly sort of brought to light some of the inequities and also just as importantly, inefficiencies of the way this, this system works. And so I think that's the background music to this election. I think the foreground music though, is Trump, 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 Trump. And Trump, in spite of himself, keeps making himself the issue, which is exactly what the Biden campaign wants. They want a referendum on Trump and Trump keeps obliging the Biden campaign. That's, that's the foreground music. And, and that presumably accounts for how Biden is running his campaign. I think you've written that, in a sense, all this suits Biden because um, a campaign in which he would have to be more front and centre, saying more, doing more, um, uh, debating more, has given way to one where he sort of stands back, looks reasonable, doesn't advance um, rhetorically or politically too far, uh, just allows Trump to keep repeating things which as you say, force the issue back to him. Is that, is that a fair assessment of the Biden campaign? Yeah, the less exposure you have as a candidate, the fewer commitments you make. The, uh, therefore, the, the, less, um, the fewer constraints on you if you are elected. Mm. Um, he's, he's made very few promises. He's not yet answered whether he would pack the Supreme Court or not, mm. expand its size or not. And in ordinary campaign, he'd have been asked that question 200 times by now and his non-answer would be an issue. Um, he ought to have been pressed on that in the first debate, but Trump kept interrupting him and interrupting himself and interrupting the moderator. So Trump again was Biden's ally um, in that respect. Biden um, said, the more Trump talks, the better for me. And I think he's right about that. And it's, there's a sort of delicious irony to Biden of all people. Um, saying that, because Biden is about as prolix and as talkative as you get. Uh, and of course is well known more fondly than otherwise um, for Bidenisms, foot in mouth disease, yeah. uh, for sort of mangling, mangling his words. Um, and so the more Trump talks, the less exposed Biden is, um, the better it's it's going for him, and um, I guess their priority, their, the Biden campaign's uh, priority over the next twelve days, is to keep it that way. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's just um, uh, then perhaps have a little look at the sort of state of the polls. Obviously, uh, you know, Biden on most uh, accounts, um, you know, a consistent and commanding a commanding lead. I was I was just looking at what his aggregator sites, poll prediction sites, the Economist. <laughs> Um, it, it has perhaps unsurprisingly Biden at 99% of winning the popular vote. Well, that's not a surprise. Clinton won the popular vote, but at 92%, 93% actually of winning the Electoral College. Now, quite a few states have got a shift for uh, Biden to be um, that, you know, higher probability of winning the uh, Electoral College, uh, you know, given that Trump won what, something like 304 Electoral College seats back in 2016. So perhaps we could just do a little bit of a tour around some of those. So Florida, for example, an older state, um, uh, one that has always been a, a you know a key swing state, uh, won by Trump last time. Um, what's happening in Florida to put it into the potentially at least into the Biden camp? Uh, Florida's a mixed picture, as it always is. If you know the day that Florida is clear is you know the day all of us are out of business. Mm. Um, a landslide in Florida is a one point five percent margin. You know, it's, it's a deeply divided swing state uh, that's edged Republican over the last few cycles. Mm. Uh, of course, notorious because of 2000, 
um, and the Gore versus um, Bush um, case there that settled the presidential election. Um, but from the polls, Biden's been ma maintaining a fairly consistent, if small, lead. So the key, key thing here for pollsters to figure out and for cephologists to figure out is what's new about this election, and that is the volume of mailed ballots, of posted ballots that people um, are sending in. Uh, um, and Florida is no exception. There's been a lot of, a lot of early voting in Florida by mail. Um, the upside to Florida is that they can start counting it now, the moment they receive it. Some states you're only allowed to start counting the day of, uh, the, of uh, on November the 3rd when the polling stations close, which means they, for example, Pennsylvania, it could take days mm. to figure out who, who's won that state. Mm. Florida, they, they will have had them all counted by the time the in-person voting has ended and you could get a Florida declaration therefore on the night of November the 3rd. And if it is for Biden, as the polls indicate, is marginally likely, mm -hmm. not heavily probable, but marginally likely, then all of our prognostications and fears and worries about an election that could drag on for days, if not weeks, would be over. If Biden wins Florida, it's over. Yeah. Um, almost mathematically impossible for Trump to win, if he, uh, to win the election if he loses Florida. Yeah, yeah. And, and just going a bit, a bit further um, north to Georgia. Now, Georgia, um, at the moment, sort of uncertain which way it'll go, lot more leaning to Trump. But um, to even be in play, some people would say, you know, some big things must have, have had to have changed in uh, Georgia. And I think the last time the Democrats won it in the presidential campaign was back in 1992 when, when Clinton won it. Now, that presumably is about demographic change, isn't it? It's about la the Latino vote. It's about the rise of a, 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 a black middle class vote. I mean, is, is, are those sorts of changes underlining this or is, it, is Biden just benefiting from, because those changes have been around a while, Biden's benefiting from a sort of sharpening of, of hostility, which allows those trends to work in his favor? Uh, um, a mixture of all of the above. I mean, a very important factor here is heightened awareness amongst African-American voters in and around Atlanta and other part, urban parts of uh, Georgia and heightened registration. Um, so Stacey Abrams, who was a Democratic candidate for governor in 2018, narrowly lost after a lot of votes were invalidated and claims, I think with some plausibility, she would now be Georgia's governor, its first black female governor, um, if there'd been a free and fair election. Um, the person she was running against who is now Georgia's governor was its um, uh, secretary of state. Yeah. Uh, and the secretary of state at state level is in charge of elections. Um, so, you know, th that's a sort of whopping elephantine conflict of interest. And I think that's angered and um, awakened um, the African-American community in Georgia and elsewhere across the country, but Georgia in particular, um, they were probably uh, in 2016, um, very similar to many voters, they were assuming Hillary Clinton would win. And a lot of people didn't vote because they were told the outcome was pre-cooked, pre not pre-cooked, but, but obvious. Yeah. Um, nobody now thinks it's obvious. Um, it's once bitten, twice shy. And I think the Biden campaign's theory, which looks like being correct, is there's going to be a much, much higher non-white turnout. They want to get rid of Trump. Um, African-Americans, other, other minority groups want to get rid of Trump. And that's why Georgia is in play. And so uh, I mean, thinking then about, um, you know, the, the, uh, that's in a sense a sort of um, a, a building of the coalition against Trump. What about the sort of flaking away of his 2016 support? So, you know, states like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, others, which now look also to be coming across to Biden. Um, you know, there, presumably, there are, I mean, there are demographic changes also at work in places like North Carolina, I'm sure. But uh, some of that, uh, you know, what people at the time characterized as the sort of revolt against the elites, the, 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 the left behind, Rust Belt, what working class voters um, who, who didn't vote Clinton, is, is Biden bringing them back or is Trump repelling them or has he just not done anything for them? Um, depends which of them you, you talk to. Um, I mean, the enthusiasm level, the intensity measure of um, Trump's base is high. Um, you know, his base might be a minority 
of America, but it's a, it's a large minority of America. Um, and he's going to get, even if he loses badly, you know, probably 45% of the vote at least. So uh, it's, it's not as if Trump's about to be blown away um, 1984 or 1972 style in a massive landslide. I mean, it's conceivable. Um, uh, and part of the reason for that is because blue collar whites, particularly non-unionized blue collar whites, which is most blue collar whites, um, still remain for the most part, very enthusiastic about, about Trump. You ask them, well, um, what's he done for the forgotten American whom he promised to help? What's he done in terms of your economics? Where's the infrastructure that he promised? Um, where's the replacement for Obamacare that he promised? Um, that doesn't seem to feature much. I think this is a demographic group that is deeply cynical about politics, doesn't expect much from it, um, but does enjoy in, in, in a way the sort of schadenfreude, the trolling of liberals, the trashing of political correctness, um, and the feeling that they are a minority, an embattled one. Um, and that's, um, that's not dissipated. In many respects, it's stronger than it was. So I don't think Trump would lose if he's going to lose because his base is disappearing. I think it's because the rest of the country will be voting in higher numbers. Mm -hmm. Against him. Um, and I mean, he makes quite a lot in his campaign rhetoric of the sort of suburban mum vote, the soccer mum vote. Um, and he makes this sort of racially coded remarks about protecting your suburb and protecting your housing development. Um, uh, but he appears to be losing that demographic. You know, he appears that the, the, that uh, women, soccer mum women are, are, are turned off Trump. Um, is, is that another kind of key variable in this election, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a very important one. I mean, especially the gender the gender divide. You've never seen a bigger gender divide in any, any ele comparable election in American history. Mm. Uh, the, um, the margin of women um, supporting Biden over Trump. Now, of course, that means there are quite, quite a few men, for men, it's more evenly split. Mm. Uh, but for women, um, you know, I think the combination of factors, one is his, you know, general boorishness. Um, uh, another, I think, is the, um, what's perceived to be the recklessness with which he's handled the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, women do still on average tend to be in less secure jobs. Um, they do tend uh, on average to be more responsible for their kids' education now, Zoom education, than, than the fathers. So they felt this more strongly and perhaps as a gender than, than men. Um, uh, the suburban mum phenomenon, you know, was what one of the most surprising, the white suburban amounts of phenomenon, I should um, stress, one of the most surprising elements of 2016, that uh, somewhere between an even and a majority of white women voted for Trump 10 days after the Access Hollywood tape. Um, that, that seems to have gone back to where we would expect it to be. Um, uh, and so it's a very important, um, um, it's a key vote um, and women do tend to vote in higher numbers than men. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, I want to come on to the, some of the constitutional questions that you've written about recently um, and what they say about America. But uh, just before we do that, I just want to ask you a, a bit about the parties, about the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, so, so on the Democrats, one uh, argument you hear a lot is that, um, you know, the center of gravity in the party has shifted that Biden had to accommodate himself to the left, uh, that his program reflects that. It's not as centrist or um, as kind of policy uh, cautious, if, if, you know, if you like, as, as, as you might have expected. Um, and that uh, uh, the, the kind of change in the profile of who, you know, people, the, the left coming through into the party, uh, winning in the primaries, um, you know, uh, and having these figureheads uh, as it now does, that the, the Democrats have um, shifted and that when, if Biden wins, when he comes to power, that will be a different coalition to manage than perhaps uh, Obama had on, and certainly uh, Bill Clinton did. Is, is that a fair picture? Yes, I think it is. I mean, and Biden, Biden was, is, is really a mirror image of what normally happens in the campaign. He, he, ran to the right in the primaries 
Mm -hmm. um, most people run to the left, to the, to the base in the primaries. And now that he's nominee in the general, he's been running to the left, uh, where normally you'd be running to the center. So he's um, zigzagged in um, very different ways to what the textbook um, sort of campaign manual would tell you to do. Um, but, but I think for good reason. So the primaries were unusual, unusually crowded. Um, and almost everybody on the platform with them was to the left of him. Um, um, even the moderates were to the left of him. Um, but then, of course, there was a strong actual left presence in the form of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in a different way. Um, and one or two others in different ways still. Um, and so that made sense to differentiate himself and to encourage a circular firing squad mm. on the left. Um, and his nomination coincided with uh, the pandemic. And as we were discussing earlier, the pandemic has sort of opened up political space that just wasn't there before. I don't think if this pandemic hadn't happened, um, he would be running quite so to the left, at least in terms of the platform he's got. His rhetoric doesn't sound left at all. He's very reassuring, Amtrak Joe, Uncle Joe, um, centrist political Mien. But in terms of his platform, he's running quite to the left. And I don't think he would be that far um, removed from normal democratic presidential platforms, but for COVID-19. Uh, of course, he did have to bring Bernie Sanders on board. And that would have, he'd have had to have done that anyway. And as you know, Bernie Sanders' half-hearted endorsement of Hillary Clinton is still blamed by the Clinton campaign for her loss. I mean, there are lots of things they can blame, but they hold the Bernie campaign responsible for being lukewarm, um, for the fact that a lot of Bernie supporters in 2016 either didn't vote for Hillary, um, uh, or, or actively voted for Trump or one of the third party candidates like Jill Stein, which led to Trump's victory. That's been very different this time. The personal warmth between Biden and Sanders um, is a striking contrast to that very chilly relationship that Sanders had with Clinton. Um, and Biden has taken on board quite a lot of what Sanders and Warren campaigned on, but not the most striking sort of headline features. So there is no wealth tax, for example, um, in the Biden campaign. There's no government employment guarantee. And he hasn't, over, uh, he hasn't fully endorsed the Green New Deal. Um, but on most of the other stuff, he's gone quite a long way towards where, uh, where Sanders and Warren were. Um, and their support so far, and I would suspect this, this will last at least 12 days, maybe 13, and their support so far is unequivocal and strong. And do you think that gets reflected, I mean, go beyond 13 days, does it get reflected in his administration? Does he bring Warren in, for example, to a big job? I mean, does, does the Clinton era establishment just come back into key positions in a Biden administration, or do we see a, a shift in the, in the personnel and the kind of, you know, the, the, the top team in the Democrats? Uh, I think we're going to see more left-wing economists advising Biden than you had with Obama. Of course, I mean, that was, mm. you know, that was seen by the left as the sort of great betrayal um, that in the midst of the financial crisis, when Obama took office, he then brought back all the 1990s characters, the Larry Summers, the, the Tim Geithners, etc., and pivoted to Wall Street. That at least is sort of the left's version of what happened which has quite a lot of truth to it. Um, those people are informally advising Biden. They're not formally on his campaign. And some, including Larry Summers, um, have said publicly they don't want any um, official positions. Um, so I, I'm, sure, I'm sure he was um, perhaps nudged to say that. Um, would Warren accept Treasury Secretary job if she was offered it? Um, I don't know whether she should be offered it, but if she were, I would imagine she would feel better off and more powerful and have more leverage from the Senate, um, assuming the Senate does turn democratic, which is quite a big assumption. Um, but, you know, if it does go democratic, um, the Senate budget chairman will be Bernie Sanders, the Senate budget chairman. So, you know, the, they can hold Biden's feet to the fire straight away. Um, I think the bigger question will not be, is Biden um, 
losing, falling out with the left. I think the bigger question would be, are the Republicans blocking everything? And therefore, do we have to get rid of the filibuster? So I think Biden's temperamental, moderate sort of instinct will be challenged, first of all, on these semi-constitutional questions like filibuster um, and uh, the Supreme Court. Let's come on to those because they're, they're very important. But just to, first, on, just on the Republicans before we leave the parties. Uh, I mean, one of the things that for outside observers sort of astonishes you about American politics is just how Trump managed to kind of, you know, f f not just win the Republican nomination, but seemingly to kind of lock in the party behind his presidency. Um, some would say, to, you know, the, the figures like Mitch McConnell and others have enabled Trump. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, and, and that... Um, uh, whatever happens in this coming election, you know, the, the Republican Party is fundamentally different to, you know, to, to the party of Reagan and even the, and the Bushes. Um, and so, I, I, you know, was this a process, again, coming back to this question, sort of trends versus kind of, you know, junctures, was this, was this already a trend, Tea Party, all that, you know, moving across to the right? Um, and then uh, after the financial crisis kind of opening up to uh, some of these more, if you like, nationalist forces on the right? Um, uh, and was it, uh, and is it something, you know, instrumental on the Christian evangelical right? Um, or, 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 or has Trump just sort of temperamentally been able to take charge and it's going to kind of revert and the Republican Party will, will, will wake up and come back to some kind of more centrist, moderate position? That's a good question. I mean, I, I was thinking and writing about this the other day, a piece I wrote called um, Even If Trump Loses, Trumpism Will Live On. Um, and uh, evangelical movements are a very good way of, a very good prism to look on this question. Um, until Trump came along, the evangelical movement was deeply disapproving of bad public behavior, of men having affairs, uh, or um, Bill Clinton, of course, um, his behavior while he was in the White House. Um, Trump's changed all of that. And the phrase I used was the evangelical movement has, has discovered its inner Vladimir Lenin, that the ends justify the means. And Trump has got in by next week, presumably with Amy Coney Barrett's likely confirmation to the Supreme Court. He would have got in three conservative, pro-Christian or very Christian, judges to the Supreme Court, a third of the Supreme Court. Um, and I don't think after Trump, the evangelical movement's gonna wanna go back to a sort of, you know, the meek will inherit the earth kind of philosophy. I think they like having a thug get to, if you'll excuse my uh, editorial um, vocabulary there, but having, having, um, having a guy who gets things done from their point of view. Um, and in this system, with the power of the judiciary and the constitutional sort of importance of this system, um, having a third of the Supreme Court in one presidential term is, is transformational. Um, you know, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett's 48 years old. She could be on the Supreme Court if she lives as long as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the next 40 years. Um, and making rulings that um, will please the evangelical community. That for them is a trade-off worth um, mm -hmm. having. So I dwell a lot on that because I think that that's true in other sort of constituents of the Republican um, coalition. Um, that, you know, the idea that this is a libertarian party that just wants small government, it's I think really the libertarian sort of fiscal small government types are um, very different to the let's cut taxes type, which is everybody in the Republican Party. But the Cato Institute, you know, is not the American electorate. It's not the Republican base. The Republican base is um, increasingly nativist, increasingly white, increasingly minoritist in its outlook, um, and increasingly um, willing to view the Christian message as part of that cultural um, sort of toolkit, mm. even if, you know, that individually, people many of these voters live more like Trump, um, at least in their morals, um, than, than um, they would uh, um, their local pastor. It's become a much more raw and um, um, I think pugilistic party. And Trump's 
departure from the White House, if that's what's going to happen, is not going to change it. Uh, that you know, the people who are lining up to replace him for the 2024, whether he wins or loses, for the 2024 nomination, uh, like Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Mike Pompeo, and I, there's several others, Ted Cruz, are very much less idiosyncratic versions of Trump. Their politics is the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, let's go on then to some of the, the constitutional questions. I mean, you've touched on these um, already. Um, one is, you know, this question that the population growth in the US in the sort of east and west coast and elsewhere um, means that this, this divergence between the popular vote and the electoral college and the protection of the role of states in the electoral college. Um, same sort of challenge of the kind of gulf between demography and political institutions reflected in the Senate, um, as every state has its senators. Um, and, then, and then the question of kind of, you know, related to that, the kind of the, the issue that you can pursue through the judiciary, through the Supreme Court, politics by another means that you can't achieve democratically. And in fact, you know, if you are an evangelical, you have an interest in democracy not working because you've captured the judiciary uh, in order to prosecute your um, uh, your pol policy and other other goals, uh, all of which leads to the sort of you know question, uh, and there are many others I'm sure you can add you know literalist interpretations of the Constitution and so on, all of which leads you know credence to the view that uh, the Constitution can't contain America's you know democratic divisions, um, that its pluralism is now a source of uh, weakness, not strength, and that. Um, some kind of change has got to come. And in, in the piece you, you wrote, there's a very good piece you wrote in the FT Weekend recently, you were citing um, Texas law professor uh, Stanford Levinson's sort of three scenarios for this, that um, uh, given those, you know, if you like sort of um, challenges from, from the, you know, the, com the constitution, one is simply you get the, a breakup of the US and some states decide to secede. Uh, the second is you have some kind of civil war um, that you can't contain these divisions and they just explode. Um, and then the third is the sort of Ottoman Empire scenario where you just get this long-term sick man of the West decline. Um, and there's a very interesting and challenging way of, of thinking about it. Some people I suppose would say that's quite apocalyptic. Do we really think the American Republic and its constitution is so broken that those are the scenarios? Um, I mean, can you can you just, you know, just reflect a little bit on that. I mean, is this a moment of kind of real crisis and rupture in the American Constitution? Uh, that's a very good question, and it's a really important question. Um, you know, the Sandy Levinson scenarios that I outlined that you just summarised, um, you know, I think it's quite clear that the most likely is the Ottoman one, which isn't apocalyptic. It's about, it's the sort of frog adapting to the boiling water. Um, scenario, and I, I, I would argue we're already well into that. Um, uh, the reason why I think, you know, this is a, um, a fraught question, but not an imminent one, it it's, can always be put off, um, is because it's impossible really to amend this constitution. America is too divided. Um, you need to, to push an amendment through three quarters of the states um, and two thirds of each chamber of Congress and then the president to sign. To line all those um, up in uh, this political culture, which is so deeply bifurcated, is almost an impossibility. And what would you be asking them to amend? Well, the most popular um, um, item on the left is to change the electoral college because right now as um, we're seeing you know every presidential election but also every senate election it's it's biased towards um it's biased towards small states and small states tend to be conservative and they tend to be white and christian and rural and so you know um north dakota with whatever it is seven hundred thousand people gets two senators yeah. Uh, and California, with 40 million people, gets two senators. Clearly, that's, that gives a veto to the South Dakotas of this world. That, that just wouldn't be... You wouldn't devise this constitution if you were drawing up a new one now. Um, but it can't be amended. And that Electoral College also, uh, you know, is reflected... Uh, that, that Senate um, malapportionment, oh. they call it, is, uh, which gets worse over time, 
um, it's reflected in the Electoral College for presidential elections. So Democratic candidates need about five percentage points more of the vote on average, depending on your scenario, to win the presidential electoral college than Republicans do. And that gap's going to grow, that disadvantage to Democrats. Um, so if you can't amend this, then what gives? Um, uh, the uh, hope would be that, you know, pragmatic Republicans having been defeated would understand that this system's got to change. Um, you have to adapt to survive. If you don't bend, you break. The lessons, you know, that Israeli taught us. Um, but that's not the mindset of the Republican Party. It's a retreating into the lager mindset that the party has got, that Trump, of course, has given a rocket boost to that paranoid minority feeling that this actual majority of the country has. Um, white majority, I mean. Um, so then you ask, well, what, well, you know, where does, where does the pressure manifest itself then? If it, if it cannot change, but it's increasingly seen as illegitimate in the eyes of the majority, um, if um, the Supreme Court holds views, originalist judicial philosophies, which are very much out of kilter with majority public opinion on whether, it, whether it's healthcare, gun control, um, gay marriage, abortion, um, uh, regulation of the environment, um, tackling. All of these issues, the Supreme Court's now got a majority that is very much out of whack with um, majority sentiment. Then, then what gives? Well, that, that gets us back to the previous question, which is um, about what Biden might, might be forced to do. They say greatness, it, 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 some, some people have greatness thrust upon them. Well, some people have radicalism thrust upon them. Um, and I suspect if Biden finds he's coming up against a brick wall with a, a Senate that's um, Republicans in the Senate who are blocking things, then he's gonna do things like supporting getting rid of the filibuster, expanding the size of the court, passing statehood for new states, like where I live, the District of Columbia, Washington DC, Puerto Rico, uh, American Virgin Islands, states that um, would have automatically two Democratic senators. These are not Republican voting parts of the country. DC, I think it was 93% voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, I think it was the record. Um, none of which is unconstitutional, all of which can be done by simple majority vote and a presidential signature, but would be seen as crossing a Rubicon on the right, which will then further polarize things um, and potentially radicalize the Supreme Court. So it, it's very hard to, you know, I don't know whether that's an apocalyptic scenario. I, I think civil war is, and I don't think civil war is likely, and it's, it would be hard to see who would be fighting whom. Um, in terms of conventional armies. Um, you know, this isn't 1860, um, but uh, it's hard to see a way out of this um, other than, um, you know, further extreme polarization, which is, you know, approaching dangerous levels already. Yeah. And so that, um, I suppose that, that wider sense of a, a larger mentality of polarization of, uh, an inability to renew and reform uh, plays into, I think, the kind of sense in the wider world that this is all part of America's long-term decline and perhaps even of, of Western liberalism, as, as you've written before. Um, and certainly the Chinese bet seems to be, uh, you know, we are, we are managing a process here of, of dealing with a declining hegemon. Uh, our rise is inevitable. China's been growing for you know many decades now. It's not going to stop. Um, uh, that essentially what we're seeing here in the domestic sphere is a playing out of a of of a country which is in decline, at least relative to the rest of the world. That the kind of position it had in the post-war period uh, can't be sustained. Um, and I, I mean, do, you, do, do you, obviously that can be overdone. Lots of people can you you can overcook that argument. Um, uh, and particularly when you see the role of the Fed and the dollar in, you know, in the global economy still, you know, would suggest very much otherwise. Um, but is that is that connection between kind of domestic political strife and uh, division and an inability to change related to a wider external position about America's place in the world? 
Uh, yes, I think it is. Um, you know, I mean, America has been relatively declining in terms of its share of global GDP, quite naturally, um, you know, for pretty much 20 years. Um, I think at the beginning of this century, America's share of um, global GDP was just under a third. It was still massively, uh, about, if you consider its population, it's about 4% mm. of the world's population. And I think now its share of global GDP is down to something like 22%. It, it's gonna it's gonna steadily decline whether you've got good government in America or not, because China, India, and others are likelier to outgrow it, and they've they've got larger populations. So there should there's nothing there's nothing deeply alarming um, or shouldn't be to Americans about you know going up to under a fifth um, uh, of the global e economy. Um, the the fear is that the American politics is now accelerating that and turning what is a, a natural quantitative decline into a qualitative one. You know, America is not a model that people are trying to emulate anymore. And if you look at the sort of ideological undertones to U.S.-China rivalry, mm -hmm. um, uh, let's say since 2000, you know, which have been heating up, uh, and they didn't just begin with Trump and Xi Jinping. Um, then I think what you'll see is uh, China um, essentially making the most of America's unforced errors. I mean, and there were three sort of huge, before now, before coronavirus, three huge windfalls. One was America's reaction to 9-11, notably the invasion of Iraq. Um, two was the 2008 crisis. Um, and, you know, that moment, whereas Warren Buffett very famously put it, when the tide goes out, you see how many people are swimming naked, have been swimming naked. That, that exposed the sort of middle class, the precariat uh, in America. And then third was um, the election of Trump in 2016, which, which really took the wind from people in China arguing for democratization, mm. that crowdsourcing, wisdom of crowds, they always choose good people. As I, well, <laughs> I've got a two word answer for you, Donald Trump. Mm. So, uh, I think it's no coincidence that the following year, Xi Jinping really tightened up at the 19th Party Congress in China, elevated himself into sort of immortal, along with Mao, Mao Zedong and um, Deng Xiaoping, his thoughts, Xi Jinping's thought into the Chinese Communist Party constitution. Um, and you've had, since then, the pandemic, which although it originated um, from China, um, has affected America a hundred times worse. I believe that the total, at least official statistics for Chinese mortality is about 4,000, 4,000, 5,000 Chinese died, mostly in Wuhan. Um, the American number is, is gonna be close to a quarter of a million by polling day. Um, so dysfunction in American politics, I think does connect very closely to how America's chief geopolitical rival is playing its own hand in, in, the, in global competition. As I say, economics is not mm. a sum game. Others can grow without America getting weaker. Mm. But geopolitics is a zero-sum game. And I think China has been, in spite of everything, and in spite of not being popular or trusted, China has been having a good pandemic. I mean, this is sort of, uh, in a sense, a sort of curious thing. That because, I mean, you wrote another uh, piece today, very sort of counterintuitive argument. You said, "Well, here's the case for Trump, and it's on foreign policy. I mean, the guy's done what he said he would do, uh, and he's taken on the kind of um, you know the foreign policy blob, as, you, uh, as as was described in by somebody in the Obama administration. Um, and yet, so so given all of that, yet you still see that you know Trump's foreign policy has, in a sense, been a success, withdrawing from Afghanistan, refusing to get into uh, quagmires in the Middle East. Um, and as it were, the kind of, you know, his policy on China, you might you might argue it as indeed you do as a sort of strategic success. You know, he's, he hasn't been playing softly, softly, he's taken them on. You know, that's one view of it. And um, that, that, in a sense, would seem to be kind of counter to the narrative that, um, you know, there's a kind of instability, volatility of Trump, that Trump is a signal to the world that America can't govern itself anymore, uh, isn't a reliable ally, uh, and therefore, you know, it presents an opportunity for its rivals. So but my column on, which is headlined, The Case for Re-electing Donald Trump, um, uh, it was, it's really an exercise as to what would be the best possible case to re-elect him. I certainly don't think he should be re-elected. 
don't get me wrong. But I was just like, what would be the best possible case? Um, and, and clearly it's not on, it's not on the domestic front. You know, coronavirus um, is being a disaster. Um, uh, it's not on the promises he hasn't kept in terms of ones that were always pretty fantastical, like building a wall on the Mexico border um, or the massive infrastructure program, which he hasn't really lifted a finger to, to, to do. Um, the most promises he has kept, whether you agree with them or not, are on the foreign policy front. Um, such as not starting any new wars, um, such as um, forcing allies uh, to pay more for their own defense, or at least trying to force them, um, such as rolling up ISIS. So I think this would be the best defense of Trump if he were able to make it, um, which he hasn't really. Um, but the, the real reason I wrote that piece is that when he loses, or if, if and when he loses, it, it will not just be a victory for Joe Biden. It would also be a victory for the Washington foreign policy establishment, which is entirely in Biden's camp, um, quite understandably. I hope they don't take it, read it as a victory for their way of conducting foreign policy. Um, because the errors that um, America has made, some of which I listed, that have been to China's benefit um, are, are not ones that it can afford to keep making. Um, it cannot afford wars of choices, wars of choice. Mm. Uh, it cannot afford to keep doubling down on places like Afghanistan. We're 19 years into this war. Trump wants to uh, reduce America's presence to zero. Maybe that's unwise. Certainly it's unwise to you know, threaten to disband NATO, but the alternative, and those arguing for the alternative, um, of a more aggressive and highly militarized, a return to a more sort of conventional but highly militarized form of American diplomacy, is what created some of the conditions for Trump to be elected in the first place. So I feel quite strongly about this, mm. that, that we should not take Trump's defeat as a vindication for all the mistakes that preceded him. And, you know, the Iraq war is only one of them. There are a lot of people in this town who supported the Iraq war um, very strongly and who, because they are never Trumpers and, and are opposed to Trump, have had their reputations laundered. We've just totally forgotten those errors. Um, and they're now sort of back to square one. There's, there's absolutely no question about their judgment. They don't like Trump. They must have good judgment. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about that aspect um, of potential aspect um, of, of what a Biden administration could be influenced by. Yeah. Um, can, can I then just I'll go into the questions now, if I may, because uh, in the time we have left, just um, I, I won't be able to take all of these questions because there, there are too many. But um, one question, and it's obviously very pressing for us in the UK, is what, what would a Biden victory mean for uh, the relationship between the UK and the US. And we saw, particularly recently, as you know, the when the government tabled its um, legislation to override the uh, withdrawal agreements in its internal market bill, you know, there was a very strong counter-reaction from Nancy Pelosi and from Biden and, and other senators, um, not just Democrats, Republicans too. But what would a, you know, what would, where would the British relationship to America go under a Biden presidency, do you think? Um, you know, I think you wouldn't, you wouldn't get any of these stoking, inciting to, you know, fall out with Europe um, signals from the White House. You'd get the opposite. Biden would, I think, encourage whatever British governments in power to be uh, to pursue close relations with, with Europe. Um, so I think for those who are hoping that, you know, Boris Johnson really is just play acting with, with these threats, that a Biden administration would, would encourage him to take a more... Um, um, responsible negotiating stance um, uh, with Europe. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol is um, very strongly supported um, in a bipartisan way in the United States. And um, it's interesting that Trump's um, Northern Ireland envoy, Mick Mulvaney, his former White House Chief of Staff, who is very Trumpian and, um, you know, pyromaniacal on, on plenty of other issues, when he went to Britain and Ireland um, recently, he was saying 
stuff that was ind indistinguishable from what the Biden campaign or Nancy Pelosi was saying on this, which is we cannot support anything that would jeopardize the Good Friday Agreement. So I've no doubt that Biden, who sees himself as very Irish American, would be um, would have a very different sort of influence to what Trump, John Bolton um, position was. Broader relations, it's gonna, you know, um, it's gonna be a very pro-NATO um, administration. And Britain is, a, you know, one of the two key NATO players in, in Europe. So, you know, that would be business as usual. Um, I don't think a trade deal with um, the US, even if the Northern Ireland Protocol is intact, I don't think that's going to be top. I mean, trade deals in general are not going to be high up on a Biden administration's um, priority list. And to the extent that you know they ever could get support for one, it would involve all the kinds of things that would put off the British people. You know, it would involve pharmaceutical companies um, having better control over drug prices in Britain. It would involve um, the agricultural sector having fewer regulations on, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff you know. Yeah. Well, one uh, a sort of related question, and I'll move off from policy, um, uh, is, you know, the, the sort of anchors of uh, American relationships in the Middle East, um, the Saudi Arabia and, and Israel, uh, both have a shared interest in opposing Iran. Um, relationship, you know, Trump, one of Trump's big departures from the Obama administration on foreign policy was to withdraw from the brokered agreement with uh, Iran. And Netanyahu has been very close to Trump, allied himself very closely with him. Um, uh, do you see that? I mean, presumably that those some of those relationships would change under Biden, that there would be, uh, if not a kind of jettisoning of those kind of traditional anchors of American policy in the Middle East, at least some kind of recalibration of them. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the country in the Middle East that's most nervous about a Biden administration is probably Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, the Saudis, you know, have been very close to the Trump administration. Trump's first foreign visit as president was to Riyadh. First place he touched down in was Saudi Arabia. Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, uh, you know, WhatsApp each other. Uh, sort of one of the weirder millennial relationships um, on the planet. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, Saudis, the Saudis are nervous. And I guess that's one reason, uh, a, a deeper one, is that Biden does want to rejoin the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. Um, and he will, I suspect. He'll probably have to make a play at Iran broadening what, uh, uh, what it includes in its behavioral limits to not just be confined to the nuclear silo, if you like, but to, to include um, uh, forswearing regional adventurism and terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whether Iran would be prepared to do that or whether Iran will stick to its line, it's like, we've been, we've been sticking to this agreement for the most part, and you, you're the one who's in breach because you left. Yeah. We'll have to see, but either way, it makes the Gulf states in particular very, very nervous. Um, I think Israel, um, the recent United Arab Emirate and Bahrain recognition of Israel um, in exchange for Netanyahu agreeing not to proceed with the annexation of the occupied parts of the occupied territories, also Trump's moving of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. These will be facts on the ground that Biden will not seek to change. Mm. Um, and so I guess in a funny way, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis have done him a favor because if he were going to get into the Israeli annexation issue, he would split his party in two. Um, his party is particularly generationary. The older, older Democrats are very sort of firmly, strongly pro-Israel. Younger ones, including Jewish Americans, are, are really very pro-Palestinian, including Bernie Sanders' crowd. So, that's, he's done, he's done um, Biden a favor there because um, at least that issue won't be on the front burner. Um, that's very interesting. And I just want to move now to a couple of other things just in the, in the short time we have left. Um, uh, one is, is the sort of American media and the kind of, you know, the debates about this now in the UK in quite a big way about, you know, establishing um, American style channels in the UK and appointing various people to, Ofcom on the BBC and so on. Um, and one of the things looking from afar is that, you know, is that um, 
Fox News and the kind of polarization of American media has a kind of had a big profound effect on American politics. Um, and, you know, if, if, if those trends are likely to be repeated, uh, adding into the mix social media, Facebook and all the rest of it um, in European politics, uh, you know, that can only be sort of deleterious and troubling. How, how far do you see kind of the American media landscape as having contributed to the polarization, but also being kind of, as it were, um, and this is partly the question, kind of irreversible? Is this now, isn't this just kind of the, the landscape of politics you just have to engage with? Yeah, I mean, I see it, and this isn't my original thought, but, you know, I see the digital revolution and its impact on society much the way, you know, the historians have treated the printing revolution and its impact on, you know, late medieval Europe or early Renaissance Europe. It's like you, you could have debated whether you should uh, uninvent printing, but it wouldn't have been a very practical stance. It, it, it has, much like printing, took the monopoly of, of sort of learned Print, uh, of, of, of books and, and thinking um, away from the church. Um, the digital revolution has taken you know, monopoly on message from, from institutions. Yeah. Uh, there have been media institutions or parties. Uh, there is, it, it is a great disintermediation that we're living through and you can't uninvent it. Um, and it's very hard to regulate it. I mean, I see that you know, Twitter and Facebook are doing more than they used to but it's it's again they they'd never be able to win even if they had completely were acting in completely good faith we should never forget you know this is great for their business model people people might say facebook is the new big tobacco uh since 2016 and the cambridge analytica stuff but facebook's revenues i think is something like four times larger today than in 2016 now, big tobaccos would have been a quarter so it's not big tobacco in any real bottom line sense from Mark Zuckerberg's point of view. There's going to be um, a push um, from the Warren wing of the Democratic Party to either regulate or maybe even break up, have antitrust action on big tech. Um, again, will, will that actually change the way information is perceived and people's trust or lack thereof for, um, Fact-checking, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think this is a bit like the war on drugs, that everybody, you know, is always about burning coca fields and, and uh, attacking supply, uh, when the real problem is demand. And there is demand for this stuff. Yeah. Um, you can talk about having, in America, better civics teaching. Civics used to be a very important subject. Political literacy um, at schools, American schools. It's been downgraded in the last generation or so. Maybe that will help, but it'll take decades to help. So I, I wish I could give you a better answer, but um, we're just gonna have to hope people themselves get better at sorting out um, fact from fiction. Yeah. Okay, let, let's just end on, on a sort of short-term and long-term. Um, short-term, Biden wins, uh, Obama come, when Obama came in, he had to deal with the financial crisis. Um, Biden wins, we're still living with COVID. Is it? Is it, you know, day one, is it just all about the pandemic and dealing with that? Does that sort of determine his first year or does he get started on some of the transformation transformation that you, the sort of Rooseveltian story would be that he goes to that, he uses the crisis to mobilize for that very fast. And then the longer term, and a couple of questions have touched on this, which is, um, you know, is, is demography destiny and is the future therefore demographic, uh, democratic um, that, um, the change that we've seen in seats in places like Georgia and so on in North Carolina, the rise of a more diverse, liberal, uh, well-educated population. You know, for many years, Democrats have, you know, optimistic Democrats have said that that's our future. Um, the converse argument would be that older people vote more than younger people. Uh, demography takes a long time to arrive. And in the meantime, there's politics. Um, could you just finish on that kind of short and long term? Couple yeah. of questions? They're both very good questions. Um, uh, so I think, you know, the, the first hundred days, probably the first year or six to nine months of a Biden administration is going to be to flatten the curve. Um, it's going to be to do what they, I think, quite rightly claim the Trump administration hasn't been doing, um, which is to have a national plan and to have it coordinated and to have clear communication uh, and to um, fund a proper a contact and tracing system so that 
um, the economy can get back quicker than um, it otherwise would. And unless you flatten the curve, um, and then I guess the sort of next stage problem is get a decent vaccine out in a, an equitable and speedy way to the people who need it most, whether you start with medical workers, you um, move on to essential workers, older people, people with pre-existing conditions, people with diabetes. I mean, these are complicated things. These are very, very complicated things to do in, you know, a homogenous small country, but in a sort of essentially a multi-ethnic continental country uh, with a constitution like America's, these are complicated things. So flattening the, uh, the curve is the first thing, but with that comes massive fiscal relief. That's where you get the Roosevelting thing. That is part of flattening the curve. Mm. Um, how you structure that fiscal relief and what scale it's at is, I think, going to set the tone for the whole Biden administration. You'll remember that, that Obama's stimulus was considered to be way too small by economists, but way too large by politics. Mm. Um, um, Biden, I think, has got a better opportunity because we've already had a $2.2 trillion stimulus yeah. in America that was passed by Republicans. So they can't make that argument. Um, so that would be the short-term thing. The long-term thing about demography is destiny and the emerging democratic majority. I have to say I'm a little skeptical of. Um, a, um, because if you look at um, surveys of Hispanics, a lot of Hispanics would be voting Republican if, if it's president wasn't um, so disrespectful and scathing towards them. Um, also, the word Hispanic is pretty contentious. It's like talking about the European vote and you're, you know, including uh, you know, all kinds of different languages and different um, religions and different um, national cultures. Dominicans who came in legally see themselves totally differently to Mexicans who came in illegally, to Mexicans who came in legally to Hondurans who, you, you're talking about very, very, and then not to get into the Cubans in Florida or the Venezuelans, mm. uh, very, very, so generalizing about Hispanics is um, something I'm always a bit skeptical of because they don't call themselves Hispanics. Yeah. Uh, white people with data, polling data, call them Hispanics. Um, and a lot of Hispanics, um, a lot of Spanish-speaking Americans um, would define themselves as white, if they were, if they were allowed to in the census, um, and and have you know pretty pro-religious values, would probably be delighted to see Amy Coney Barrett elevated to the Supreme Court. So the idea that these are all automatically in the Democratic column is a wrong. B though, on a tactical level, the Democrats indicating that that's what they think is is tactically very stupid. It's it's it, it alienates people, um, and it makes Democrats lazy. It means they don't bother to find out much about them and what they need and what they want and what their different perspectives are because they just assume Trump has pushed them into their column. Um, and just a last sort of point on that, George Bush got 40% of the Hispanic vote, 40%. Mm. Trump's gonna get about 25%. And that's after really, really insult. I mean, racial, racial generalizations that are beyond, beyond any, any sort of limits of toleration. Yeah. Uh, imagine what um, uh, a Spanophilic Republican nominee could get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I suppose that indicates that, you know, the curse of complacency for the Democrats, that even now you and I have talked about what, what does Biden do as president. My questions, I suppose, have been guided by still assumptions that in 2016 did, turn, did not turn out to be true. And... Um, for Democrats to assume that these demographic factors are in their favor and that, uh, uh, you know, come election day, come November the 3rd, uh, those voting blocks come behind them, um, lead to the same sort of complacency that defeated Hillary with her support. I mean, the polls do look, you know, much, much further apart now, but is that is that one of the kind of problems of, for American Democrats that they they just get too complacent about their position with these with these parts of the electorate. Yeah, and you could see that in Democratic Party's history too. Um, you know, they lost the Irish and Italian, a lot of the Irish and Italian vote who became Reagan Democrats and are now very much Trump Democrats. Mm. They lost them in the 70s um, by um, basically taking them for granted. And of course they were assumed 
Catholic immigrant voters to be um, axiomatically um, democratic because that's what um, non-WASP immigrants always are. Um, I think Hispanics could follow um, Italian and Irish trends if, if Republicans stop nominating racist <laughs> nominees. Um, and I think the Democrats should understand that from their own history. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, Ed, thank you so much indeed uh, for those fantastic answers. I mean, completely kind of co panoramic, comprehensive take on American politics and America's place in the world. And uh, I, for one, will carry on reading your columns in the run-up to November the 3rd and beyond with, with great interest. Um, it's been very good to listen to you tonight. Thank you for giving us your time. And I'm sorry to those watching whose questions I didn't manage to get into the uh, questions to Ed. I hope I covered enough of them to to give you uh, some answers. But thank you very much indeed for, for watching and joining us this evening. Um, do stay in touch with our work at the Institute for Policy Research because we do a lot of events, so do stay in touch. But my, I just want to close by thanking you again, Ed, for a wonderful, wonderful um, talk and, uh, and for you know, such insights into American politics. And uh, well, you'll be a busy man until November the 3rd and beyond, I'm sure, uh, but uh, it'll be to our benefit. Thank you very much indeed, Ed. Real pleasure, thanks. I enjoyed that a lot.